You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello and welcome to episode 293 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined today by Seth Miller. Hey, Seth. Hello, hello, hello. No Foz today. He uh, had something come up, so no. Just you and I. Just the two of us. <laughs> we can make it if we try. Just the two of us. Where are we going? Are we going Nowhere. somewhere? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Things are reopening. Airports are back in business, except in Italy. Uh, people are getting on planes, sort of. It's interesting. The stats are up. <laughs> the TSA numbers say that people are flying again. So, well, so let's talk about that first. Eurowings uh, turned around. Wrong airport. It, not even wrong airport necessarily. So much as it's. It seems like just the airport was closed. um and no one noticed that when they filed the initial flight plan or uh anything else you would think you would think part of the you know checks for going you know is reviewing the notams and i'm pretty sure the notam would say closed (laughs) i mean i'd like to think that um so a eurowings flight on saturday which would have been on the 23rd of may went from Dusseldorf to the Sardinian airport of something with an O here. Oh, oh, I don't have, I can't, no, I can't find it in the story. I lost it. Olbia. O-L-B-I-A. Okay. Um, was told by air traffic control on approach to the destination airport that the landing was not possible. Uh, <laughs> That's very clearly what's not possible. was a very German statement. That's from their <laughs> spokesperson. Uh, yeah. It sounds like, except for Rome and Florence, Florence or Milan, but Rome and Florence, the air, Italian airports are all closed until June 3rd. Wow. Um, we have figured out in the meantime that there was a misunderstanding when putting together the relevant information for the flight, said the spokesperson. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> um, the, so the article is hysterical and it finishes with this great line. One minor relief for the No Frills airline. While it was obliged to rebook passengers on the trip to Sardinia onto other flights, only two were in fact on board. So there were only two people on the plane anyway. <laughs> And I also, I mean, so here's an interesting one. In theory, EU 261 says the airline is obligated to house and feed those passengers until it is successfully able to deliver them to the destination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If the airport's closed until June 3rd, that's a 10-day hotel yeah. bill. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Presumably they're at home, and so they could probably, the airline could probably convince these people to just go back to their actual homes. But that's a really interesting um, I mean, I mean, still, you would think they're obligated, right? Like they're obligated to pay. Uh, so if the people decided not to go home and just wanted a nice little hotel stay uh, yeah. for, for 10 days. I, I just I don't know. That's a weird. Who the hell knows? So so my assumption then is that come this June date, those airports in Sardinia or those airports in Italy that aren't Florence and Rome will reopen. Is that the correct? Uh, it sounds like no sooner than. And yes. Um, OK. Hmm. But I can't find the ICAO code. Oh, there it is. Leo. I was going to see if I can find the NODAMs for it um, while we're chatting here. But it's uh, who the hell knows. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, the opposite side of things, uh, Berlin Tegel Airport is closing uh, June 15th, correct? Yeah. Um, and they're, they're doing this. They're doing this to save money, I'm guessing, because short term closing, but maybe longer term. Yeah, it's definitely money saving because there's nobody flying or no airlines flying. And so they're going to try to push everybody over to Schoenfeld, yep. um, which is right next to the new Brandenburg. But and in theory, the new Brandenburg is vaguely open because uh, they got all their sign offs, but and they haven't done the sort of full passenger 
tests, but mm-hmm. the sign-off came with the acknowledgement that there aren't that many passengers, so we don't need to do them yet, which I also find amusing. Um, but in theory, if it closes, um, you know, if, if Tegel closes, by the time the flights start to come back, um, if they just all go to Schoenfeld instead or to the new Brandenburg, we might not see Tegel reopen since it was supposed to go away in October, November anyways. Yeah. What about, I mean, does this mean Lufthansa is moving things to Schoenfeld as well? I don't think so, but I don't know what Lufthansa is flying out of Berlin right now. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Yeah. Um, at all. So, uh, I think this would be kind of cool. Uh, it's sad. I mean, Teagle Teagle is uh, just this side of a dump, but uh, it's a it's a cool 1970s. Come on, it's no LaGuardia. <laughs> uh, it's close. <laughs> the ceilings aren't leaking. I guess that's a plus. Too badly. Uh. <laughs> but it was never like the nicest airport. Like I always felt like the the whole setup and bathroom situation and security situation was just a mess. Oh, yeah. I mean, so the, it's sort of like Kansas City was with security and uh, immigration and everything at and baggage claim at every gate or pair of gates. Yeah. Um, almost worse than Kansas City in some ways. I mean, right. If In the old, good old days, it was super fast. You drove up, you walked onto your plane and you got out of there and you didn't yep. have to fight with crowds or anything. But in the more modern era, uh, nothing is as good. So yep. uh, I still remember I had a, a trip many, not many, but a, many moons ago uh, where I was supposed to fly into Schoenfeld on Norwegian and then the next day fly out on BA out of Tegel. And I still never flew into Schoenfeld because of this. Uh, my flight got canceled because the inbound airplane had a guy got drunk and exposed himself to the cabin crew. Oh, lovely. And so they all had to give statements to like when you're standing in the gate area and you see armed officers show up in the arrival <laughs> side and you're in the UK, you know, something's bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like guns aren't a thing there and here we were um anyway so they all had to give statements to the police and then they all timed out and our flight canceled oh. i got lucky re- found a 4500 point award seat avios on the first flight out in the morning from heathrow to tegel that turned around to begin my trip home because i was already in london and had to get to berlin to start a berlin london new york trip yeah um it was a little crazy and that was the start it was a berlin originating trip and i needed the return half of it again later so it was important that i got there i got lucky i got the seat i got on board uh whatnot i literally walked off the plane walked up to the immigration booth. i was sitting in the back because i was last person to book couldn't get seats uh it was like last person off the plane said see in a few minutes to the flight attendants i walked off and just like chuckled and they were very confused i was the last person through immigration as i walked through he stamped my passport closed the like inbound side spun his chair around and opened the outbound to help clear passengers going back into security and i walked i walked around and handed him my passport again (laughs) oh my gosh so he was very confused and then i got and and i was like the last person through security to get back on the plane also uh and then i got back on the plane and the flight attendants were like we weren't sure if you were serious about that or not what's going on (laughs) I mean, that's my experience at Eagle is similar. Like I was, I was late for uh, the Newark flight. I was running behind. I woke up late uh, and literally was the last person through immigration and security to get on the plane, which was nice. I mean, it's nice that it's like right there. So I had already checked in online and everything. I was ready to go. And I just had to give them my passport. It was a saving. It was a saving grace. If I had, I had to go through a whole line of people and everything, I probably wouldn't have made the flight. Yeah. So, so. anyway, it's, but there's a lot of reason not to like it. Um, also, I mean, it's super close to downtown, which is great. It's, but no train service, bus only. If you want mass transit, it's a cheap taxi ride, but yep. no mass transit. Uh, Schoenfeld slash Brandenburg are way out. The trains aren't up for the full route yet. There's a whole lot of things going on there. So, 
I mean, it'll be nice if there's a train. I think the bus the bus to, to Tegel has always been kind of busy, depending on the time of day. So I don't mind like, taking it. Yeah, it's, I don't mind it, but it's also like it's on weird, like, back road surface streets. It's not yeah. like a highway or anything. It's like you're yeah. driving through town. So there's traffic impact and everything else. Yep, it can easily make you late if you're not paying attention. Yeah, so I can't find a NOTAM that says the airport is closed, for what it's worth. Interesting. I see that uh, the star is not an authorized for arrival and a couple other little things. Some procedures have changed, but not that the airport itself is closed. So I wonder if it's not closed-closed, but also not accepting uh, commercial flights. That could be it. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. I found it. COVID-19, aerodrome closed to commercial aviation traffic. Um Seems aircraft kind of important. Having, yeah. <laughs> aircraft having a maximum configuration equal to less than 19 seats are approved in compliance with Ministry of Infrastructure and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. You it's think just, they would have figured that one out, but. Yeah. And cancel the flight weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Reference created 21 May, valid until 2 June. Estimated. There, oh, there it is. I had to scroll down a bit. It was right after, you know, we can't use these gates and uh, what the, and the, the weather radar is offline. Huh? All, all important things to know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Delta is adding a Cape Town stop for their uh, Johannesburg service, and that's moving to an A350 since the 777s are, are leaving. Yeah, and so the A350 doesn't, the 900 doesn't have quite the same range as the 777LR, and there was a lot of cons- questions about how they would serve some of their longest routes. And a Delta executive made the statement of the new version of the planes are more of the 350s have some improvements that will give us the range we need. Um, There's actually a new higher max gross weight version of the A350-900 that gives it a little extra range. This is not the ULR. It's just a higher Mm -hmm. model. So um, they can get a little better range out of it that way with just some extra fuel on board and things like that. But uh, South Africa or Johannesburg has the hot and high problem, which is the altitude of the runway is it's at elevation and it's hot there. And that makes the air thinner and it makes it harder to take off. Um, yep. so heavier planes don't go so well. So how are they going to, what, what are they going to do? They're going to fly, uh, Atlanta to Cape town and then Cape no, town right. to Johannesburg or the other way around. Okay. So they'll go Atlanta, Johannesburg, Johannesburg to Cape town and then get, yeah. get to so take off from there. Cape town's at sea level. So they don't have the altitude problems and they can get off the ground with the full, uh, full tank of gas and get all the way back to Atlanta. Um, interesting about it. I, I think from a crew perspective, it's going to become a trip. I imagine it'd be sort of like the old uh, United flights with the Hong Kong tag mm. um, where, but not quite. What I'm not sure is if they, I don't think they can do a single day Joburg, Cape town, Atlanta. I think they have to do day one to, you know, one and two, whatever to Johannesburg overnight, Next day to Cape Town, overnight, next day home. It's a nice trip if you can get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, a little bit of South Africa adventure and two stops. Also, the the times the times were a little weird. Um, it's like 90 minutes on the ground in each and whatnot. But I think the times would be good for our crew. They'd get a full dinner, a nice night out in Cape Town. And then they'd be more adjusted time zone-wise, I'd imagine. But Well, and they're, and they're not selling Johannesburg, Cape Town. They cannot. Like, right. They don't have Fifth Freedom rights, um, which is... Or cabotage. That's not even fifth freedom. It's cabotage because um, within a country they don't have local traffic rights. Um, so yeah, they can't sell that. But you can buy. I assume I'm certain you can buy either as a round trip. I also am pretty certain you can buy it as an open jaw. Oh, so you could you could fly into Johannesburg and or even into Cape Town and then out of the other one. Yeah, but I'm, I do wonder: can you fly into Cape Town and out of Johannesburg 
which and then connects get, in Cape Town. <laughs> yeah, and then you'd have to get yourself back. Like you get the hop, the short hop on Delta, and then get back on your own eventually, and then get the short hop on Delta again. Yeah, I don't yeah. see why you wouldn't. Um, I mean, again, and all of this is assuming that the regulators approve it, which they should. But um, you never know. It could be we might find it uh, Anchorage protesting. <laughs> and do you do you think that do you think that what's that? Do you know why I made that joke? No. So, so, sorry, I'm a little off tangent here, but speaking of random sort of international PAG flights, United applied to restart Hong Kong to Singapore as a cargo flight mm-hmm. using passenger slots because um, that's a fifth freedom route. There's a lot of there's limited slots available um, yep. and United wanted that slot and they applied for it. And Anchorage Airport run by the state of Alaska filed an objection saying they've already said that they're not going to fly to Anchorage this summer they're, you know, thumbing their nose at us. We don't like it. They should put America first and stop in Anchorage instead. It's not that far out of the way um, from any of their hubs. It's like it was a weird justification. They also, in the filing, indicated that we also assume that the residents of Singapore with their stifling heat and humidity would appreciate the opportunity to vacation in Anchorage where the weather is much nicer. <laughs> um, it was like the most ridiculous filing ever. And United responded to it basically saying, let us be clear, we are seeking to move cargo between Hong Kong and Singapore. This has nothing to do with Alaska. While we are not going to officially respond to their statement, there's no way we are going to make this plane stop in Alaska. It was like <laughs> the very politic and, you know, whatever diplomatic form filings of, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I don't, I mean, could you could you see someone protesting this at all? Uh, the, the Johannesburg, Cape Town? I no, and United has United is theoretically the only ones who on the U.S. side who would. Mm-hmm. And they already have their Cape Town slot and can use it whenever they want, so no problem there. And United could probably extend it to similarly would be able to extend a triangle flight to Joburg if it wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, assuming that this one gets approved um, on the South Africa side, like you could argue that the South Africans might not be too happy, but they get to keep service, and it's not like they have an airline that can stay in business anymore. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, with with the A three fifty and with with Cape Town uh, service there, do you think this is like Delta is going to do this long term? I mean, this it's right. because the, it's the seven sevens the triple sevens can't do it. So, um, do you think they'll tri- they'll up their orders for an ULR? Maybe maybe they'll buy an, a ULR, or do you think they'll just keep this tag flight forever? I think they'll probably keep the tag flight at least initially and see how it does. Mm. Um, I mean. The ULR is supposed to be able to fit pretty smoothly into the operations otherwise, right? Like Singapore has them and yeah. it's not, it's not true. I mean, it's an extra subtype, but it's not truly a new fleet that you have to integrate. So it's not a huge deal. Um, and maybe they could convert some of the LATAM orders of 10. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it, part of it also depends on the cargo needs. I think the ULR replaces some cargo space with extra fuel tanks. Okay. So yeah. If they're doing heavy cargo or high volume cargo from Atlanta into Johannesburg, it may like switching that over to a ULR might actually not work mm-hmm. from a, from a financial standpoint of needing the space for. Yeah. And they just let the people fly home with the extra stop. Yeah. Interesting. And it's still I, better uh, than stop in Europe. Yeah. That's I mean, that's very true. I mean, this gets you in the United States. One, basically you stop in, in Cape town for a little while and continue on. I wonder if they're gonna have to get off the plane. I would guess so in Cape town. I'm trying to figure if they did, they'd also have to do it in Joburg, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in theory, you have to get off if the crew gets off. Gotcha. Because if there's no flight, there has to be flight attendants on board to evacuate even when you're on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's so a regulatory thing. But the new flight attendants theoretically could board and then the old ones leave. 
maybe. Mm-hmm. And that would qualify. I don't know. Um, I mean, we did the Island Hopper uh, flights and we didn't have to get off except for we like sort of it was like a half and half get on and off thing at a couple places. Yeah, they gave you the choice, right? You could. Yeah, but the flight attendants stayed on board for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, along that line, uh, Stefan from uh, uh, Rapid Travel Chai. Rapid, Rapid Travel Chai has a question for you. He wants you to finally explain Scissor Hubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's had both of us on uh, the Every Passport Stamp uh, Facebook group live video things. He's doing like a different guest five nights a week. It's actually a really impressive volume. I think I'd go crazy if I was doing that. Uh, but. <laughs> We got on, he had me on last week and we were started chatting and he's like, okay, I finally got you. We can do this. You have to explain scissor hubs again, because I listen to the podcast all the time. You guys are always talking about it and you never bother to explain it. And I started to explain it. It was like the first question he asked. And I started to explain it. And then we found out that the audio wasn't working and the, or the live video wasn't working. We had to stop and start over. And when we finally got back on, he forgot to, <laughs> he forgot to ask that question again. So we never did it. Um, scissor hubs, every airport where airlines connect passengers to say hub, Atlanta's a hub, right? Like it looks like a starburst though. Cause the flights go out in all the directions mm-hmm. when the flights go in and out, mostly linearly of some sort. Uh, it's more like a scissor hub. Um, and that's so coming out of Keflavik, for example, in Iceland, Iceland Air has two sort of scissor-shaped or V-shaped paths. One goes west into North America and the other goes east into continental Europe. And so if you imagine that's a pair of open scissors sort of showering from, with the, the pin at Keflavik and then the wide range of the blades extending out across Europe or across North America. So that's why it's called a scissor hub instead of just a normal hub that looks more like a star. Um, and generally speaking, scissor hubs, the timing of the operation is more heavily banked and is usually only one or two banks rather than, you know, an Atlanta that I think is on a rolling bank schedule now or is not, but is close to it or has like nine banks and DFW has seven and whatever. So a scissor hub usually has fewer than that just because you really are heavily dependent on inbound outbound flow from the same directions. So, I mean, really Reykjavik Catholic is, is a great example of a scissor hub because it is so focused on United States to Europe traffic and vice versa. Yeah. And everybody flows in one direction in the morning and out the other direction in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any others that you can think of off the top of your head that are like so focused like that? Um, Guam-ish, but not okay. really. Okay. Um, no, not really. I'd have to think harder. Yeah. I kind of put you on the spot there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like uh, at one point they were joking or not joking, teasing the idea that uh, they were going to do it in Cabo Verde. <laughs> And they were gonna, it was going to be the Iceland Air model there, but they're going to run it out of. We've talked about it on the show where they're going to run it out of like the North Atlantic off the coast of Africa. Yep. yep. And connect from North America down into Africa more um, with a similar sort of pattern. Uh, Delta sort of ran one out of Dakar at one point, I think, right? Where they were connecting or they were going to connect passengers through Dakar and let you switch flights there. You know, it's going to have like a JFK and Atlanta feeds, and then you'd get to Dakar and. If you're, you know, like two flights in, two flights out to different connection, you know, either you get out of Dakar or you can continue to like Lagos or Accra, I think, Ghana. Yep. Um, Accra, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, and they, they, you know, plane A would go one direction, plane B would go the other. Um, but if you were on plane A and you wanted to go to the destination of plane B, you could switch at Dakar while the planes were there. And I don't think that ever really took off. I think before, after they announced it, but before it took flight uh it proved to be financially a poor decision um but and probably from a from a maintenance and uh maintaining it standpoint of you know now you've got two planes there if something happens you've got all these people stuck i mean it would just it kind of seems like a nightmare right for for a small operation yeah i mean to an extent yes but you put people on the ground all over the place if planes break you have contracts to help support them 
That's true. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to think of one off the top of my head and I can't think of, of anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, most hubs are much more omnidirectional because with limited exceptions, that's sort of how the volume works. You could sort of argue Dublin is sim- is similar to mm-hmm. uh, Keflavik in that it also is for all of Europe onto North America. Yep. Um, it's a little wider on the European side. but hmm. Well, so Stefan, I hope that helps. I hope Seth explained it clearly this time. And every now and then I will try to just, I'll just have to remember to edit this chunk of audio out and replay it like every 10th episode. So that, you know, <laughs> when we talk about these things and I forget to uh, explain it, we have that readily available. <laughs> oh man. Um, I, know this is, I know this isn't the first time we've had the conversation, but I just, I forget that we don't do it every time. We certainly don't do it this long every time. And I forget sometimes. So yeah, it's, it, but it was a good reminder. <laughs> um, Air Canada has a, a charter operation um, called Jets um, that they run. Z. Yeah, yeah, with the Z. Uh, and they've they've run that uh, basically for sports teams, or if you just need a private charter, you can charter A319s, I think, uh, and it's in an all-business config. And they've said that they're now going to run that on Toronto to Montreal and Toronto to Ottawa uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. As a Yeah, a morning and an afternoon flight. Um, this is an interesting one. So it's like a 58-seater 50, uh, against 120 for their normal config. Um there's like a 7 a.m. departure in one direction and a 5 p.m. departure in the other um, or as the second. So it's right. It's a morning and an evening. You can do a full day trip um, either direction. One, I think from Montreal to Toronto and from Toronto to Ottawa are the better timed flights. Mm-hmm. But both sort of work. Um, I, I like it overall. Uh, I really like the I mean, there's a couple of other things they're doing. They're calling it sort of like the shuttle, you know, type operation where it gets a better gate. Uh, you can board up. They only are going to start boarding 25 minutes prior to departure. So you can just hop right on um, a lot of good things like that. The interesting, most interesting thing to me though, is they're not selling it. Or when I looked, they weren't selling it as a business class seat. Yeah. It's just a premium economy, I think. Right. Yeah. But the regular flights, the premium seats are sold as business class. Yeah. Air so, Canada's Air Canada's weird like that, man. Okay. It, it's it's goofy. Like they can't. I mean, I talk, I think I talked about it on the show. Like they couldn't sell Portland, Vancouver, Montreal on a seven eighty seven with premium economy. They couldn't sell me premium economy because the Portland to Vancouver has only coach, so they couldn't sell me the premium economy seat at all. There's not on an their, option to say if no seats sell in this fair bucket, blah blah blah. Like yeah. the other airlines have figured out. Yes, exactly. So I'm guessing they had to code these all as premium economy for pricing reasons. Although that makes you wonder that there certainly means they're not going to be able to sell them as a connection to anybody. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm wondering. Like, how does this even work? <laughs> but I'm guessing it's just O and D. Yeah. O&D. Which is another one Stefan got mad at us about. Origin and destination. Yes. So passengers taking a nonstop flight. Yep. Or and, ending their, and, and, and ending their journey in Montreal or Ottawa. And, you know, uh, I think it's, I think, you know, I actually think it's a really good idea as far as spacing. Um, the domestic departures at Montreal is fairly tight. Like the, the gate space is very, like you're very close to everybody. Um, so I see this as being a plus for that. Like if you're only going to board 25 minutes before departure, then people can kind of slowly make their way, keep distance and, and, and then the plane spaced out. So you don't have to worry about that part. Um, I actually wish they would run this. I probably will have to go back to Montreal. I wish they would run this on Vancouver, Montreal. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, so the other thing about it that's interesting to me is when I checked, there was like, Four flights a day this week and next week when this launches, it's up, it'll be six or seven. So they're mm-hmm. trying to add frequencies to support a sort of rebound in traffic and see if they can grow some things, but also trying to do it without having too much capacity in the market. So only adding 60 seats that are all premium, uh, that's a really 
interesting and sort of affordable way to bring capacity up. You got a premium option. Uh, there was a mention that there's a lot of uh, reward inventory on it, although I hadn't checked what it would cost to redeem them for points. Um, you know, it's there's some interesting ideas about just total capacity shift of you're not adding 120 seats and you're not doing it on a regional jet. You're doing it mainline-ish. So although it's the charter operation, but it's like even though they're retiring all their 119 or all their 319s, uh, in the next year or so, this gives them a way to still use these and get the uh, get the capacity up while not really blowing yields out of the water because mm. it's only a little bit of capacity increasing, not a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it allows them kind of test the waters a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yep. It's cool. Uh, Hertz is filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, Chapter Eleven. Uh, just a restructuring. Do you think that they'll come out of this okay? I mean, were they just bound to to go bankrupt? You think, regardless of COVID. You know, there's a lot of thoughts I have. Um, it, I think in many ways, this is the horrors of private equity come to roost, where they come in, buy it out, saddle it with huge debt, mostly to other parts of the business, see if they can't, you know, extract all the cash out of it and then let it go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very cynical and poor explanation of how the capital or the, the private equity firms work, but also happens to sort of be true in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. Certainly about the, the com- and maybe it's just the companies I follow and hear about because, you know, they're the ones that make the news, but, um, and there's plenty of other private equity firms that don't have these problems and just go about their merry business, but they're not the ones I hear about. So I'm sure my view is skewed there. Uh, sorry to all our private equity brokers and traders that are listening. Tell me how I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but if you go, if you look at what they did, they, the, the this version of Hertz had a, you know, ownership change a few years ago and a few other things. and heavy debt lately trying for various, you know, tr- quote unquote transitions to the market and business and it didn't work real well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, could, could part of this bankruptcy be, could one of the other uh, car companies be looking to buy them or do you think? I it's, doubt it. Yeah. No, no need, no, no reason for their, I mean, their assets of cars is probably not much value to other companies. Well, not right now, just because no one's using rental cars. Um okay. You know, the, on the plus side, I suppose, you know, they could liquidate some more into, you know, the someone I never really understood rental car agencies and how they make money and how they are a smart business. Um, someone explained it to me finally as they buy the cars at massive discounts because of the volume they buy and they get them directly from, you know, Ford or whoever, Chevy, Mitsubishi, whoever the company is du jour. Um, they get them at a massive discount. It's a very labor intensive market to keep them moving through the airports, but the Basically, the daily that they're bringing in on the rent or on the on the rental fees covers those costs without much trouble. And then they sell the car a couple years later based on real world pricing, not their pricing. So they can get the they get close to what they paid for it back. So oh, it doesn't that, really depreciate that badly for them. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that either. Right. So it's the, the, the kicker, right? They sell the cars. I've always known they sell the cars. The kicker is that the turns out they don't take as huge a hit on the depreciation selling them or it's relative to, you know, book value, but not relative to what they paid. So there is some challenge there. Um, but if they liquidate a bunch of extra cars now, you know, not that many people are really car shopping, apparently. Um, so they might take a loss for a little bit, but I don't think it completely destroys the business model. Mm. Uh, the bigger issue is what it, I mean. Longer term, does this really change anything? It's hard to say. This only affects the U.S. portion of the business. Um, and someone had asked us about this on Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago, or not a couple days ago. Uh, ben asked us about it. Um, you know, does the the international stuff and how those all operate? I don't think that those will have to go through bankruptcy. 
um, filings. I think those are, you know, probably a bit more franchised, but I'm not sure. Um, just my personal experience renting it from, from many countries outside the U.S. I feel like it was all franchises, not corporate owned. But beyond that, I really feel like this is more of a virgin uh, Australia situation where the business will probably be fine. They want to wipe mm-hmm. out debt and they'll get away with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like, I mean, one, the point of buying, I've, I've always thought buying fleet cars from rental car agencies is a terrible idea because they're, have you, have you looked at a rental car? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, I've driven many of them. Let me tell you what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't want to know. And neither does the car company. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just, I can't, I'm, it, it befuddles me that people are buying these at market value when they're driven like someone stole them. Like they, yeah. I mean, constantly being driven into the ground. Uh, Aggressively. I mean, yes, I've I've gotten I've gotten the car with like five thousand miles where the transmission was already slipping, and I'm like, I'm like, wow, this is bad. So and probably on an automatic transmission too, which is harder to. Yep. Draw. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so India is talking about how they're going to uh, restart their uh, domestic flights. Started uh, today. And, and how, what is it's it's bizarre, right? Like there's some weird stuff going on. So it started on Monday, the 25th, um, with like three days notice. They gave the they gave the airlines and passengers very little notice that it was happening. So that was a challenge. Um, there's fare caps, both maximum and minimum fares that are allowed to be charged based on mileage bands or block time bands. Um, so it's like every 40 minutes ish of block time, the fares go up a little bit, but the, and then plus, plus, plus taxes, et cetera. So, but the fed, the federal government is mandating the fares to try to protect against uh, gouging, which I guess is sort of okay, but also enforcing minimum fares to protect against the uh, more cash flush airlines from running a true fair war and putting others out of business coming out yeah. of this. Yeah. So that's amusing to me, especially because one would assume it's basically the government trying to protect Air India from being bankrupted by Indigo, um, the biggest and then the government uh, backed slash national airline that they're trying to sell and can't find anyone to buy and are going to get screwed on. Um, so that's part of it that I find interesting. There's also... The fact that the quarantine and isolation rules are set by the states in India, not at the federal level. Hmm. And certain states have indicated that they're not going to suspend the rules for domestic travelers. And then on top of that, the state that contains Mumbai, um, which I never say right, so I'm not going to try, uh, has indicated that for the first few days, it's not going to just open up the airport and let everybody fly in and out. They're going to limit the number of flights. And it started at 45 a day, I think, and it dropped to like 20 or 25 a day <laughs> for an airport that typically is slot restricted 24 seven running super high volumes. So like then, you know, there's no international service really yet. And it's just repatriation flights for international stuff. And so there's not all the demand, but Mumbai would certainly have higher demand if they opened up and let more airlines fly. So it's just a really weird set of circumstances. And like SpiceJet India, is it SpiceJet or Air Asia India? One of the two put out a statement saying, "If you get quarantined or denied entry upon arrival, it's not our fault. Check the rules." <laughs> right? Which and it's also weird because like the governments don't like the airline doesn't really know what the rules are for accepting passengers. It's not like, do you have a passport? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that'd be like flying domestically in the United States, right? And then, like, you fly from Portland to Houston, and then you get to Houston, and they say, "Oh, you can't, you can't get off yeah, the plane quarantine. here." Yeah, yeah, you're quarantined. Which, I mean, they sort of did in some cases, right? Like, Utah was making people declare. Florida was telling people to go home, like, go to a isolation plant. Hawaii yep. was enforcing it more strictly. There were some examples of that, but none 
quite the same as how India was doing. It's just, you know, it's it's a little weird. And I think I threw a link in there to a story um, from AJ, who's one of the uh, guys from Boarding Area who lives in India and who's been very helpful to me in the past. And so uh, always has good information about that and has been running some good stuff there. Um, and, you know, 82 flights in and out of Delhi were canceled. Um, the Ministry of Civil Aviation, Aviation says 532 total flights took off with 39,000 passengers or 74 per plane, <laughs> which is very light loads, um, all things considered. And you know, some cool pictures of people in protective gear and stuff, crew and whatnot. But it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I was reading about uh, them, uh, India opening up the, the trains, like the, the train system back up and yeah. how, how it was fairly chaotic and they were having to put controls on because people were, you know, people have been stuck maybe away from home and were yeah. finally going to return. And so it was kind of like a mad dash to get on trains. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's not happening for flight or at least the government's trying to prevent that. Uh, but the whole, you know, state control of who can enter and can't is, is kind of bizarre. Yeah. I mean, just some of the other states. So Mumbai is only – he has 50 here and I think it ended up revised at one point um, down. Chennai is only doing 25 arrivals per day with no limit on the number of departures. But you can't get the planes there uh, to do it. Hyderabad is only 30 flights a day. Um, Kolkata and Bagdagra aren't even opening until Wednesday. And then – uh, only 20 flights per day. It's, there's just like all sorts of weird state level rules about what's really being allowed. And it's making it super hard for the airlines to figure mm-hmm. like, just imagine you're an airline and you get the message from the FAA saying, okay, we've been fully shut down for two months. You've been, we've been telling you to maintain your airplanes because we're never exactly sure when we're going to start service again. We're giving you 72 hours notice that service is starting, get ready to go. And then in the intervening 72 hours, you continue to see adjusted messages from the airports where you are coming and going to as to how many flights you will be allowed to operate and at what times. Yeah, yeah. And you're selling and you got to sell tickets. And so there's a bit, you know, there were some protests from consumers who bought tickets. And then I think one of the airlines sold tickets before they were supposed to. And they didn't have the right fares in place per the rules from the uh, ministry for the fare, like the fare caps. And so they canceled those tickets, told everybody it was just a credit, and they had to go back and buy tickets anew. But they had been selling them super cheap, and now they had, like the fares went up and people were pissed. Like, just all sorts of idiocy going on. That's crazy. Yeah. Wild. So, yay. <laughs> um, so Air Canada was going to buy or merge with Air Transat, and, and that's kind of now been put on hold until some stuff sorted out with the EU. What? On hold is relative, right? I mean, it's sort of just going through the approvals process. But the EU has apparently the competition regulators there have balked at the idea. They want to see at least some more investigation and potentially put restrictions on the sale. Okay, I mean, because they, I mean, I think one of their arguments was that it would it would basically diminish the competition. Competition would be stifled because there's like 33 destinations that Air Transat flies to in Europe. So. yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, I, I, could you see this falling through if or do you think that they'll make them relinquish or add service or guarantee service to certain airports? Usually the way these play out is slots are released or something else um, comes into play. Uh, right now, uh, it's unclear what the concessions requested might be. Mm. Um, the Canadians locally have also expressed some concerns but it's not clear um, how strong those are going to be. And so just trying to come up with, you know, it's not like the airports in question are generally that these guys fly to are all slot restricted. I mean, are you going to make the Air Canada Transat combination give up a Heathrow slot? Mm. And then to whom, right? Like there's not, there's not, is WestJet going to pick it up? I don't know. 
And I mean, and part of that, I mean, part of this was part of this move was to make them make Air Canada more competitive to WestJet is what they've said, which I find interesting. Um, well, it's to eliminate a competitor. And yeah, that's the, the irony is that, yes, it is going to significantly reduce competition. That was the point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. From the perspective of the airlines, at least. Um, yeah. So I just I, you think this will go through. You think that they'll still be. I don't know. What the, I don't know what the concessions will be, but I imagine there'll be some negotiations and something will come up from it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, New Zealand has reopened uh, a bunch of lounges. Air New Zealand has reopened a bunch of lounges around the around the country. Yeah, 12 of them so far. It's, uh, it's int- you know, contrast the sort of chaos and confused operations of India with uh, countries that seem to be managing the system and situation much more smoothly. Uh, a la New Zealand. And it's really interesting just to watch overall. And so, uh, from the day that you know they New Zealand switched from a level three lockdown to a level two lockdown a couple of weeks ago, uh, about two weeks ago, and when that happened, they the airline was involved in the process and in the sort of unveiling the news and had the ideas of when it was going to happen and were given a heads up so they could help or be ready to make the adjustments necessary to start increasing service. And so it was, you know, little by little, they've been adding more flights. They've been adding capacity. In some cases, there's actually a three times a week, seven, eight, seven service between Christchurch and Auckland, (laughs) um, mostly for cargo. uh, But it also does get them uh, some increased capacity. New Zealand is still blocking seats, blocking middle seats, but did, excuse me, some little things like adjust it. So, and you know, they had to do this, they had to adjust the code to make this work. But if you're flying with multiple people on a single PNR, you can use the middle seat. And if you're not, you can't. Yeah. So they had to figure out how to properly sort of sell that to make it work. But they think that it's adding about 5% capacity back into the system just with that little change. Oh, that's so nice. all these little things, but now it's the lounge is open and they announced it a couple weeks ago that this was the target date and it finally came to fruition. Um, and so on Monday it's coffee only, no alcohol or coffee and non-alcoholic beverages, no alcohol, uh, no buffets, only packaged snacks at your seat, but with sort of staff waiter service. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. It's, and limited capacity because there's a rule that says no more than a hundred people in any lounge type venue. And that includes like movie theaters and stuff. So nationwide, that that also applies inside the airport. Okay, okay. I mean, that makes makes some sense from the perspective of you know, here's the gatherings, and as we get into a new another phase of reopening, um, you know, yeah. that number will increase eventually. Um, it's very that's it's very orderly. <laughs> um, do you think with more people flying in this five percent capacity increase, is this is this a good sign? I mean, is, I mean, I'm guessing you're going to say yes, but do, do you, are you seeing similar things around the world? Yes and no. I will say the 5% is just extra seats that they can make available, um, not necessarily that are available or that are being filled. Um, And so, and that's sort of an average depending on how many groups fly as opposed to solo travelers. Um, The one stat I saw is that two weeks ago, the day before the switch from level three to level two, the carrier handled just under a thousand passengers. And this week it's a day and it's now up to about 5,000. So like, oh my God, 5X increase. That's amazing. But typically they were about 30,000. So that's 17%, 16.5% of the typical. So the real hard part and uh, their chief revenue officer, Cam Wallace, is pretty active on Twitter and is a good follow um, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, He's been talking, you know, sharing a lot of this data and just sort of very facts, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of situation of this is where we're at today. This is what we're doing tomorrow. This is what we think is next kind of stuff. And it's really interesting to watch. Um, he's saying that, you know, business travel hasn't fully returned yet. There's been a sort of push for, again, people who are stranded to get home 
mm-hmm. which we see everywhere. And then it plateaus. And, you know, he's, he says stabilized around 5,000 per day. But the question is, once it's stable, what's the next step to growth again? And mm-hmm. sort of getting back towards where it was. And I think, you know, New Zealand should probably be able to do it more quickly just based on they contained everything better. Um, but how well it goes very quickly, um, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wonder about this in the United States just because I, I need to get to Texas uh, rather relatively soon, not yeah. you know, in the next month or so. And I was just looking at flights and, you know, the options are extremely limited to get to Texas. Um, if I want to go to Austin, uh, there's maybe three flights that'll get me there in the same day. Um, if I want to get to Houston, my options are a little better, uh, but, but it ain't cheap. Like going to Houston is very expensive right now from Portland. Um, but going to Austin is relatively cheap because there's a nonstop on uh, Alaska. So I, I just wonder how that plays out around the country just because airlines, it's like the chicken and the egg thing, right? They, they gotta, they have to have service so that people can fly, but they don't want to add too much service because they want to make sure people are going to fly on those planes. Yeah. And then, right. They're trying to not fly empty. They're trying to make money, but then you also have the problem of passengers. I mean, I'm watching Twitter roll by as we do, as we read now, and there's some guy in line in Charlotte calling it a travel nightmare of a line wrapping around the lobby to get through the TSA checkpoint um, with no social distancing. Um, hmm. And he's a reporter for, looks like Charlotte's local TV station. Um, Interesting. Doing his best to Twitter shame uh, an airport. So good on you, buddy. Way to go. Uh, and the reality is, like, the TSA announced a couple days ago, like last week or the week before, that it was changing its screening policies and slowing things down to help protect its agents. Um, mm-hmm. We talked last week about the mask situation with them in the N95s. They are all wearing masks now. I don't think they're N95s, but the agents are wearing masks. Um, they're, they're changing it. So, like, you hold your boarding pass out the scanner instead of handing it over to the agent, which mm-hmm. not a big deal. But uh, the other thing was um, if you if anything in your bag alarms or, like, comes out and says, like, it doesn't look right, rather than the agent unpacking it and, re- and carrying it back around and rescanning it for you, they just send you back out and have you do it all over again. That way the agent doesn't have to touch your bags and touch all your stuff, which makes sense from a protect the agent's perspective. But but it's going to take more time. (laughs) It's going to super slow things down. It's like the first reaction I had was, holy crap. Like if you screw up, you're, you get bounced all the way back outside again. And so like, if you're like me and you don't, you know, in general go for a pat down rather than walking through the um, detectors, imagine you get through and then they're like, Oh, there's something in your bag. You have to go back out. If I got to go back out and get patted down again, like, even just going through the new scopes again is bad, but going having to pat down again would be a disaster. So there, there's some interesting challenges there. Um, what do you think they're going to do? Like, I mean, is pre-check generally still open? Is that kind of like a, are they keeping pre-check policies in place? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's another, another part of the situation that I uh, am unclear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all unfolds in the United States. I think it's a little more, we might be a little closer to India than we are, than we would like to give ourselves credit for as far as chaos and uh, yeah. <laughs> disorganization. So, um, Lufthansa is, uh, now become a nationalized airline at some level. Only 20%. That's cool. <laughs> uh, they're basically getting a bailout from the German government, uh, and the German government gets a stake. Correct. Yeah, uh, twenty nine billion euros, so almost ten billion dollars uh, for a twenty percent stake, an option to buy some more, um, some non voting warrants, a whole bunch of fun. Wow, um, did they? Does Lufthansa say that like was this absolutely necessary to basically keep doing business? Uh, 
I mean, yes, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Um, they had been pushing hard to not have the government take a stake and just make it loans. Um, and I should say of the money, I think $3 billion is loans and mm. $6 billion is actual investment or $5 billion is straight investment. So there's a, there's a bit of a mix. Um, but, you know, it's more interesting to me than that the government owns a chunk of the airline now. And, you know, who knows how it'll play with voting rights and things like that. Also, this all still has to be approved by the EU regulators, but they've approved a lot of things. Um there's uh it's hard to say what the real impact of the government stake is other like you know as a 20 percent owner do they now get more votes are they the leading shareholder can they vote sort of do they drive voting blocks they can't necessarily drive everything but they are a huge block so Mm -hmm. um you know when we hear things like the 346s retired the 380s aren't coming back to frankfurt um maybe the 777x is going to get converted to some freighters along the way who knows uh, there's, there's a lot of questions to be in yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and I kind of don't care, um, that there's gov- some government, you know, I don't, Hey, we have enough wholly government owned airlines anyways. Um, I get that in a pure free market thinking, that's not good, but airlines never have, uh, adhered to the pure free market, anything, um, yeah. with foreign ownership limits and everything else and slots, just the whole, the whole industry is a mess of ownership rules and things. Um, beyond that, I would say, you know, let them run the business and see where they end up, right? I mean, Air France KLM has been government owned forever. Alitalia is back that direction now. Like it's all, it's, it has been there for a long time in Europe and hasn't really, I don't, I don't think it's one way or another destroyed the market. So yeah, this isn't a shock to the system basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of our listeners on Twitter asked us a question, Joe, uh, he actually has two questions. Uh, how, how is it going to work with long-term storage and planes and, and, and airlines getting those planes out of storage? Is it going to be a slow process or do you think it's going to be like overnight? These, you know, they send a bunch of pilots and pick all these planes up. Well, slower than that. Um, wrapping them up takes a lot of time. There's a lot of sort of while wrapped maintenance that goes on. Um, and then they got to get them out. And so unwrapping them, cleaning them, Ref, you know, refilling all the, you know, f- the fluids, right? Mm-hmm. Oil and wiper, oil and wiper fluid. Uh, check the dipstick, kind of thing. Um, make sure all the tail parts are there. Make sure all the tail parts are there. Yes, an iAero plane, uh, formerly Swift Air, right? Coming out of coming out of one of those parks, ended up landing in San Diego without like big chunks of the tail. Some panels <laughs> missing. Um, if you found one of those somewhere across Southern Air California or Arizona, please contact the FAA. Um, you know, there's. Good questions. Uh, it's going to take a long time. It takes a few days is the short version to get a plane mm-hmm. ready to go. Um, now, that depends on how many people are dedicated to the task and how many you know engineers are working on it, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if they bring a whole bunch of technicians out, could they get a whole bunch ready to go so that within a very short period, many could come out of storage? Yes. Um, it seems a, more likely to me that w- they'll be dealing with them sort of 10 at a time, not 100 at a time just based on what the demand return is going to be. Mm. So it'll be kind of be in chunks of 10 to 20 uh, that are coming out over weeks. Yeah. And, it, you know, a couple of days each to get them ready. But, you know, maybe you bring in, you know, 10 at a time over it's, you know, people days. So if you just bring 10x the number of crew and you can get 10 ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's all going to depend on, you know, what's the demand and what are, you, what, what are your plans? You, you may take longer based on, oh, well, we're only going to restart these routes. And so we only need these planes. What about the planes that are parked uh, at the airports? So, you know, you've got... Uh, uh, IAH for United has a bunch of planes parked there. Uh, Atlanta has a bunch of planes parked. Uh, yeah. You know what? What are we? What are they going to do? Is it the same process? I mean, I don't think those have all been drained of their fluids and, and stuff, but they still need some uh, restart time. Correct? Yeah. So there's basically sort of three levels of parking. There's sort of the equivalent of just an overnight 
Um, there's short term and there's long term. And so the long term ones are the ones where they truly drain them out and you know seal them up pretty much. Um, and even then, they still have to do stuff on a regular basis to make sure they don't. You know, like they have to spin the tires so that they don't develop flat spots on the rubber. Like, yeah. and now I wouldn't have really thought about that, but sure, it makes sense. Because um, otherwise, when you're landing, you get a double bump, double bump, double bump, and then the tire blows. Um, not good. Uh, but the you know the short term parking is quicker to realize and quicker to undo, and then the overnight parking sort of situation, even if you stay for a couple of days, uh, is even faster to undo. So mm. um, now that said, I've heard, for example, that the Delta planes at Kansas City are considered long-term storage on the taxiways and runways there. So I think it's just taxiway on it, but they've got something like 85, 84 planes. Uh, There's an awesome picture sort of nose on, and it's all, I want to say like a three twenty family on one side and all seven thirty seven on the other, like just (laughs) like a, almost a herringbone shape straight down the line, all the way down the taxiway. It's a really cool shot. That is cool. And someone had, someone else had to point out to me that it was actually one type on one side and the other type on the other. I didn't pay attention that much, but, (laughs) um, Joe asked another question. He says, are, are the airlines setting themselves up for a, a class action lawsuit when it comes to refunds and the lack of refunding uh, money? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think at this point, I think uh, I think if people push hard enough now, they'll get their refund. I think but maybe yeah. six weeks ago, I think, yeah, they probably were open to it. But I think now my, my confusion on that is I would have thought if there's potential for a class action to be successful, it's not like there's a shortage of people willing to go out and be the lead plaintiff in these things. Yeah, it would have already happened, right? And so I have to assume that the lawyers were chasing it down already. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we saw a lawsuit come up with the, what's it called? Uh, United's employees. They someone filed a class action trying to get them, get their hours back and yeah. things like that. So um, I don't know. I, I am skeptical. I, I would assume that if, it, if there was a chance of it being a lawsuit, it would have happened by now. Uh, it doesn't mean it can't in the future, but my guess is the problem is the... Uh, there's the damages are too small and there's no way for the attorneys to get their 30% in a way that's useful. Yeah. There's not enough money in this to, to make it uh, viable. Right. Well, cause you're going to say, give us back all our money. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. We'll give back the passengers, all their money lawsuit over. The lawyers are going to want 30% on top of that. And the airline is not going to want to pay that. And so like getting the judgment to be in a manner that supports that is going to be, would be hard, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the damages, you know, like claiming damages and things like all that kind of stuff would be, um, I would I would say hard to prove or hard to justify other than just getting your money back. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't I don't think it's really realistic that that anyone's going to pursue it. I would be very surprised. Yeah. So, um yeah, I think that's a show unless you got anything else. No, I'm good. I'm good. We got baby we got baby uh, robin eggs hatched. So, I'm gonna, Ooh. Yeah, in our backyard. So, I'm going to be watching some uh, new pilot training uh, for the next few days, <laughs> uh, hoping for successful departures. Are you going to be a, a proud a proud robin father? Is that what you are right now? Is that- <laughs> go Stepfather? Uncle. <laughs> uncle. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, was going to ugly have- ugly looking birds fresh out of the air. <laughs> Just like weird. Anyway. <laughs> uh um, one last thing, uh, the Virgin Galactic oh, wasn't Virgin it supposed orbit. to orbit? orbit. Uh, was supposed to take off today and, and launch, and it failed. So the uh, Cosmic Girl is a seven forty seven that has been retrofit. You know, seven forty seven is really cool. Actually, seven forty sevens have a hard mount point to carry an extra engine for testing purposes. Yes. For testing and for transport, because you know they were at the time like so big, um, and the engines were so big, and the planes went very far afield to often to places back to our conversation about scissor hubs in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, where you might not have a full maintenance base. And so, and it actually happened um, recently, even like 747 gets stuck somewhere 
because an engine fails. And rather than hire a cargo plane to bring a new engine in, which is very expensive, they just bolt one on to an existing passenger flight and carry it along. Yeah. Um, set the set the fan to spin free inside and just let it go. Uh, it's really cool that they can do that. So there's this extra mount point on the left side inboard of the near engine. Uh, Virgin Orbit converted that pylon to a rocket mount point. Um, and there's a picture floating around on the internet today of like of the rocket under, and you know how big engines are, and then you've got like a rocket next to it that's double the size. It's insane. Um, it's just a huge thing sitting there. It's really cool. But the 747 takes off. Uh, they're currently running it out of Mojave in Southern California. Takes off, flies out over the ocean, and then sort of picks up speed and then pulls up. And as it pulls up, hits a release button and drops the rocket. Oh. And the plane gets out of the way, and like three seconds later, so the rocket has been falling away and the plane's been rising out of the way. All of a sudden, the rocket engine lights and, in theory, um, takes the thing and gets it up into space. Super cool concept. There's a lot of theoretical advantages to it, assuming they can make it work. Uh, today was the first time they tried to do it and actually light the Launcher 1, which is the name of the rocket uh, engine, and it did not go successfully. It was fa- There was a failure. So they have to go back and check the, quote, mountain of da- mountains of data that they've collected and uh, come up with an answer for what happened. But yeah, the Newton 3 engine, uh, which is the first stage, uh, suffered an anomaly early and uh, they terminated the flight. I mean, it's it's interesting. Can it land with the rocket still attached, if need be? Can the 747 land with it? Uh, as far as I know, actually, I don't know one way or another. Because, um, <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's a very risky platform, right? Like, if you, you take this rocket up, uh, anything happens, you take out a plane with the rocket um, and the crew. Uh, whereas on the ground, you know, you may lose uh, a launch pad. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's interesting to me. It's a, it's a definitely a cool way to do it. I just, I wonder how viable it is long-term. Yeah. I mean, counterpoint is getting a rocket launched off a pad. Um, you, you, you burn a ton of fuel for that first little bit. Mm-hmm. Just to move it. Um, and the weather restrictions are much mm-hmm. more strict for getting a rocket off the ground than for getting a plane off the ground, even if the plane is carrying a rocket. Mm-hmm. And if there's, you know, thunderstorms here, but there's, it's clear 600 miles West the plane can get off the ground in thunderstorms and fly 600 miles West. Yeah. So rather than scrub a rocket launch, uh, you just get it off the ground and move, move, you quote unquote, move the launch pad. Yeah. That's definitely definitely a cool part. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yes, there's some risk, obviously they're being very careful about all the risk things. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, it's definitely, uh, hopefully I get to see it launch. They, I mean, one thing I noticed was they weren't live, live streaming, uh, which is disappointing. It is. Um, they said that, you know, they they actually announced last week that they uh, are using Panasonic for in-flight internet um, for connecting all the engineers on board and all the monitoring on board with folks on the ground. So presumably at some point in theory, they could at least have systems on the plane live streaming off. Um, the That connection won't attach to the rocket because the rocket will eventually separate from the plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's there. Yeah, cool. Well, Seth, I think that's, uh, that's it for today. Um to our listeners, I mean, if you've got any more questions, if there's things you'd like to talk about, leave us a tweet, email us, or uh, leave us a note on Patreon. Um, yeah, you can find us on Twitter, at DotsLines, moredotsmorelines.com. Uh, happy to hear from you, and uh, until next time, happy travels. Bye-bye. Safe flight.